0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boschu And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Thank you. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Sandborn about plagiarism. Jeff, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Sure. I'm a... Professor of English at Amherst College. And my work is mostly on 19th century American literature. But in recent years, I've like branched down. I've been thinking more about reading and kind of like responsiveness in general, like ways of responding to the world and responding to other people, responding to music, and the way that those things are continuous with the experience of responding to literature.
0: Cool. We might have to invite you back on to answer those kind of questions.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: But today we're going to ask you about plagiarism. So what the heck is plagiarism?
1: I, I love the heck thing. It's, <laughs> <laughs> here's what the heck plagiarism. I don't mean like, like, you know, if I could say such a thing. Well, and the funny thing is if, if I were to say such a thing, I would be quoting somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't be able to throw all the quotation marks in the right places. Platrism is the concept that grew up together with the concept of originality. It's actually advanced to the point where there's a kind of cultural premium on a certain kind of individuality that is inseparable from like the concept of originality. As soon as that happens, the fear of somebody passing themselves off as somebody else, appearing as an original individual but actually not being and the fear of like maybe you will say something you will do something that somebody else will point to and say actually somebody else did that first and you're not original you're a totally secondary being and, and well i should say also it's a function of literacy and, and it's a, something that appears in literate cultures like just in, in conversation we don't no, you know, it's hard to remember other people's words <laughs> in the order in which they presented them. So, yeah. so that's basically how I think of plagiarism. And so because I think of it that way, I'm very interested in sort of the psychoanalytic features of the fear of plagiarism. Why are we so concerned about other people not really being individual or about ourselves not really being individual?
0: Interesting. Okay. So why? What's the fear there?
1: One of the things that I remember vividly about grad school is a feeling of fraudulence. There's a feeling of being a pretender. Like, you know, I felt like I was, I was just an undergraduate. I was just taking courses from people and now I'm TAing courses. <laughs> and like, yeah. what happened? How, and like, how did I become the person who can stand up in front of other people and talk to them and expect them to listen and and remember and learn? Like, it's a crazy thing. So one of the kind of like psychoanalytic features of this is just a sense of the, the always encroaching possibility of shame being publicly exposed as not equipped to do what other people are equipped to do, and this is very associated with status in the way that you know grad school is so associated with status, and are you going to like be able to elevate yourself to the position of. The faculty in your department, or are you going to do some other career? Which, in in the perversity of like grad school, every other career is a failure, you know? Yeah. Um, That's not at all true. Um, Yeah. One of the things that I I think I get worked up, I know I get worked up about, is the amount of shame that people feel licensed to direct towards people who have been accused of plagiarism. And, and feel happy describing, too. There's somebody writing about plagiarism in general, I remember, who said, like, it's almost inevitable that you feel a kind of instinctive repulsion from someone who's been accused of plagiarism, and you get a strange feeling in the pit of your stomach, and that it's a very, like, physiological sensation of, like, revulsion against that. Why would it be that intense? Somebody else compared it to both murder and rape, and called, like, irredeemably sleazy. So that those are some
0: <laughs> Well when you were talking about the authenticity and the idea that someone might be impersonating you or you might be impersonating someone else yeah i thought of the talented mr rickley
1: uh-huh yeah that's kind of where my mind was going to in the sense of why is there this fear of others impersonation just in terms of that half of it not fear of yourself being exposed necessarily but other people and it's so much is it is about like people that haven't been born to The kind of status that you were born to and yet appear in your world and seem to be capable of claiming that status but you don't really know where they're from you know and and what their what their background is and so you know the talented mr ripley the talent is a sleazy talent you know like not something that you praise it's like the talent that destroys the concept of talent (laughs) you know there's not a large group of people who are sort of like celebrants of plagiarism we really are basically on the side of a lot of people who are accused of plagiarism. I haven't found them anyway, but I certainly am and and that's that's one of the reasons why like the fear of plagiarism the accusations of plagiarism come from positions of power and status and in the field of literature it's the guardians of the basic elite privileged status of literature are looking out for people who are like imposters
0: mm. yeah. Totally. Thinking about that, how do I use plagiarism?
1: Again, this is a great question to, to ask of people. How do you use plagiarism? Yeah. I would say like a, a couple of things. Maybe I can do the chat GPT. Yeah, totally. Tell us about chat GPT. I'm, I, I won't. I'm not, I'm not like a... Um, I haven't been following this as closely as i think some, some of my colleagues have but the part of it that, that i've been interested in is actually kind of a, a recent development where if you google humanize chat gpt you're going to find a bunch of websites in which people are selling programs that you can use to treat your chat gpt content so the so these websites say did you ever notice how AI content isn't exactly warm? And you may be wondering how to kind of make it more personable, or the, the word they use most like is humanize it. I'd haven't done it, but you know, you you take your chat GPT text and, and you put in this new like algorithmic procedure, and what comes out supposedly is more more humanized. Okay. And this is fascinating in so many ways. But one of the ways is it's not, they don't say like, it's not individualized to any one speaker. Right. Although I guess that's the future of AI is going to be closely linked to the voice of the original speaker. But instead it's a generic kind of like humanization. So the emphasis is on what they call flow and coherence, most often these websites. And I'm so interested in that as a kind of like way of approaching what I was saying initially, like the experience of reading literature and when things start to sound as if they have a quality that can be described as literary. You know, whether you believe in the concept of the literary or not, if you're teaching an English class and you have a syllabus, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're like, why have I included these things and not, not other not things? Other. And yeah. part of it is that, you know, well, this is like an important work of literature. I mean, like, <laughs> how were you able to tell the difference between that and, and some other work? So like one of the things that I wrote about in Plagiarama this is a book about uh, African American abolitionist and writer William Wells Brown, the most kind of prolific and I think important like 19th century Black writer who used other people's language like crazy, like and often in really in really funny ways. One of the things I got interested in was the way he sort of he plagiarized syntax. He would take passages from various kinds of writers and like take out the predicates, like in a sentence with a lot of anaphora or something like that, but keep the anaphoric rhythm and have all the, the commas in place, kind of like breaking up the pattern of language so they would have a flow. You need to sort of break paradoxically, could create the experience of flow. What i was arguing in the last chapter of play drama was that there's a certain sound to famous writing to writing that sounds like literature which is what he was trying to do when he was writing clotel the first african-american novel and so he was sort of like analyzing previous literature and especially like early 19th century literature for places where he could hear that sound a, a sort of like sense of Sentences that were relaxed and open and sort of like implied that you weren't on the clock. Like okay. sentences can open up internally and expand and get these kind of rhythms, which means they're not getting to their point, their literal point, the period at the end of the sentence. Literature, one of the things it seems to connote is like having all the time in the world, you know,
0: especially in 19th century literature, like especially <laughs> century, <bad> novel.
1: <laughs> yeah, opiousness, you know, yeah. so if the sound of copiousness was what he's looking for. So the question is, how can I use plagiarism? I think using it as a, as a concept, it keeps me very, very grounded in the way that what I say is not just a series of you know conceptual statements that happen to have taken form in words and sentences. If I just started listening to my voice right now and the patterns of it and, and things like that, I'm participating in a kind of human sounding language. That's one of the things that I'm communicating just in this context. You know, I'm I'm on a podcast, et cetera. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Which sounds quite different from written language, right? Yeah.
1: We think about like, are certain phrases yours in the way that like your couch is yours? Mm -hmm. And it's actually very hard to see why that would make sense. Copyright law is good for writers because it makes it possible for them to have a career and continue to write. And there's a real reason to have it and defend it. Mm-hmm. And, and also with students' papers, this is a major credentialing operation in which really like status is being sorted out for the next generation. And I think it is really important to try to keep that process as you know, fair and equitable as you possibly can in every way. But in a work of literature, I'm always like, who's harmed you know, William Wells Brown Plagiarizes from William Lloyd Garrison, and William Lloyd Garrison gives him like a really great review and doesn't mention plagiarism or or whatever. Yeah. If you start to think about the the kinds of plagiarism that don't really harm anyone or consolidate power, then I, I think it's possible to have a different way of approaching them. I feel like there's a fundamentalism about plagiarism where every time somebody says plagiarism, you go click, you know, and you know, sleazy, you know, my stomach hurts and and. As opposed to going, well, there's some cases in which, yeah, I, I think it sucks, and there's other cases where I don't, you know, so just that so if we had plagiarisms in this in some magical universe that I'm imagining, yeah. and we thought about the the way it's used, like how is it being used and to what end? And is there maybe even something kind of nice and relaxing about not having this sort of largely fantastical idea of purely individual expression purely original expression inside us and instead you know we we're talking about Pauline Hopkins earlier and the way she dislikes the feeling of voices that have a kind of double voiced quality in which there's something that's sort of at a distance within somebody else's voice and you can hear almost like a another point of view another point of origin within the voice i like the idea of my voice not being so separate from other people's voices.
0: Yeah. I think one of the great pleasures of writing academic prose, as opposed to like writing fiction, is that you get to quote so much, right? Oh God, yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I tried writing fiction. That was my initial idea with myself. Yeah. But I would just look at the paper and I'd, and, uh, or the screen and be like, you know, nothing would coming to my mind. And as soon as I wrote anything into that space, it would look so terrible and wrong. Like it looked, I don't know, it came in my head and then I put it there and I'm like, you know, I can see everything like detestable about it as possible to see. But when I was talking about things I liked, you know, it was different. Uh, Whitman was really important to me, like early on, like the end of Song of Myself. I would want other people to hear the language and the, and the sound of the language, because that's what it was that moved me. And I wanted to talk with somebody else about something that was really important, but very difficult to capture. So now when I, when I write criticism, I have these paragraphs that are me writing and then quote, like other people come in and me and then a little, quote, quote, quote. I'm really orchestrating a bunch of other people's voices on the page. And I'm really happy being that kind of writer. I don't think I'm suited for the
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. How will
1: plagiarism <laughs>
0: save the world? Mm.
1: Saved or will save?
0: Oh, we usually keep that question in the future tense, but I'd be curious to hear about the past. Sure.
1: Okay. Well, this goes back to what I was saying originally about plagiarism being a kind of like co-concept with originality. Yeah. In the, the 90s, I did a lot of work with post-colonial Theory. The sort of like understanding of post coloniality that I was working with was one that was associated with Homi Baba and Stuart Hall, in which post coloniality was something that appeared in the same moment that colonialism did. That it was in the same way I was just talking about originality and plagiarism. Baba's concept of colonial mimicry was really the as soon as some kind of imperial colonial self is projected, the question of like, how real is that, you know, and can that just be imitated by somebody else? And then it doesn't have the authority necessarily that it does. So post-coloniality is a position that questions and hollows out the colonial pretension, you know, underneath and around to to ways that are never going to be fully knowable. It's a little like, like racial passing, where you say whiteness, and then whiteness has turned out to be imitable, you know, and Cases. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't know what whiteness is anymore. Yeah. Wherever cults of originality spring up, I think there's been something really saving about the fact that they could be sort of undermined and worked with and kind of like enjoyed in the form of play and that this duplication just sort of like went on and on and on. I love Anna DeVere Smith and the way that she takes her interviews with her subjects and listens, you know, for certain kind of like moments and patterns of speech and then embodies each of these characters in plays that she performs herself. One of the things that she said in the interview is that the words we say are not that original or individualizing. It's really, we're always picking up language from elsewhere. This is a Bakhtinian kind of concept too, that we we get our language not from the dictionary when we speak or write, but we're getting it from other people's phrasings and other people's words. And in some sense, keep a kind of process moving that's continually arrested by the claims of originality and possessive individualism, and the capitalist economy that grows up on the basis of that. You know, David Graeber's great book *Debt* mm-hmm. about like the way that debt, something else that gets treated as like irredeemably sleazy and things like that, is yeah. what he calls like the fabric of sociality. If you want not to have a relationship with somebody, you have a monetary exchange. That cancels out the debt. If you do want to continue to have a relationship with someone, having a running debt is actually something you want, you kind of actively want. There's that kind of spirit of non originality, that's been running along with Underside. And it's kind of like, (laughs) done something towards saving the world. Yeah, like, thank God that the only thing we were working with wasn't the cult of originality and individuality. Where the hell? I mean, I mean, it's frightening. What so I think that's what has <laughs> saving grace in the world and in a lot of ways and can continue to be. Thank you for yeah. coming
0: and talking you. with us.
1: Yeah, it's been a great conversation.
0: And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fixed. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, Sharonik Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio, and Sharonik Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.